Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our conversation on Brave Feminine Leadership. I'm absolutely thrilled to introduce to you today, Professor Gemma Figtree. Hello, Gemma, and welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So um, I'm just going to kick into a little bit of your bio for people of who you are. And so Professor Gemma Figtree is a mum, is an interventional cardiologist at the Royal North Shore Hospital and a professor at the University of Sydney. Five years ago, Gemma took on the role of president of the Australian Cardiovascular Alliance and set about transforming that organisation. And in 2019, they secured uh, federal funding of 220 million towards cardiovascular health, an amazing achievement. And in all of that mix, Gemma, you also manage chickens and whippets. <laughs> I try to. <laughs> fantastic to have you here before we kick into our conversation today you know I just um, you know I want to thank you for taking time out to join the conversation and I guess just lead off by saying that um, you know cardiovascular events are the leading cause of death amongst women and you know I have to say that you know in my peer group uh, we would probably list something as breast cancer ahead of that and certainly in terms of our awareness of that um, but can you talk me through a little bit of that you know something that I think a lot of my peer group would still perceive as a male disease yeah absolutely I mean as women we're actually um, we do present with cardiovascular disease slightly later than our male colleagues but even young women cardiovascular disease is one of the biggest killers there as well so i mean about between about 35 to 50 or 49 percent of women across the world die of cardiovascular disease so it's absolutely the leading cause and much of this is absolutely modifiable with the things we know but there is also a lot that we don't know still about what drives individual susceptibility to getting coronary artery disease heart attacks heart failure and sudden death and so this is something that we need to continually to work on. Um, there's, there's huge inequities as well in terms of who's actually suffering the greatest mortality and morbidity in this space. But um, I mean, as you say, awareness is actually a really important aspect of this. And I think there is, you know, some degree of, of kind of community sentiment that heart disease is all solved. It's just what people do to themselves. And, you know, it's just that people aren't looking after themselves, which is something that I'm very passionately advocating against. There, whilst we do know at a community level that these major risk factors, including obviously smoking, diabetes and diet, et cetera, drives disease, there is so much more that, that drives the individual susceptibility that is not their fault. And um, we need to change the way we look at this. Whilst maximising health, we need to also make sure that we, we tackle all of the unknown about cardiovascular disease. Before we go any further, can I just ask, what does an interventional cardiologist do? We're the plumbers. So we basically, we've trained as physicians, not surgeons, but we do have a little bit of a surgical kind of approach and mentality to things. So 
our, particularly here at North Shore, where we see a lot of acute heart attacks, we get uh, patients triage directly from the field. So sometimes in the middle of summer, that's people straight from the beach in their, in their swimmers, and um, they get sent straight through to the cath lab um, with really good communication from the ambulance um, to us. And we get activated the minute that the minute the ambulance picks these people up. And we basically spend our time um, trying to, as quickly as possible, open up the blocked artery that's causing the heart attack. Okay. So you're the ones we want to see in that. Yeah. So we use a, a little artery in the wrist and actually use that as, a, as an entry hole to get back up to the heart. We have a, one of the most amazing things is the team of people that actually work together to tackle, you know, to really try and sustain life whilst actually opening up the artery. Thank you for doing such um, amazing work. How did you how did you get here, Gemma? How did you uh, let's go right right back to um, you know you as a child and um, what led you down this path? Yeah, I mean I had a very privileged upbringing. I grew up here in Sydney and um, was you know really completely in, in, lucky to have a scientist as a mum and a, uh, a radiologist or a, a doctor that does a lot of imaging as a father. And we, I think, were lucky to be exposed to the amazing aspects of, of both, you know, the human body, but actually just obviously, you know, animals, the world, how it works, that kind of thing is, uh, was something that was embedded in our upbringing. And I think I've always had that, that awe about, you know, how lucky we are with our health and what, what our bodies actually can do. So that was part of my early kind of, I guess, um, passion for, for medicine and optimising health and, and understanding of, of how, how, how we work. Um, so that was one part of it. I also was lucky to go to a school where STEM was really, um, you know, I guess, well, very well taught and um, a big priority. Uh, from fifth grade, I, it was a, it was a, a private girls' school that had a, a very dedicated, um, you know, history of, of promoting, you know, effectively girls can do anything, and um, you know, accept the challenge on that front. So I, I've had particularly inspired by a science teacher that um, that taught me particularly for the last years of high school, and um, you know, at the time I actually was tossing up between teaching engineering and science kind of things and, and medicine. I think ultimately I always wanted to do medicine and the, the, the turning point was really that um, you can actually combine all of the above within medicine and I, I'm lucky enough to do that. Mm. So I, you know, my life now is I'm, I'm lucky to be, you know, try to be the best possible doctor I can for my patients, but also from a research perspective, um, get to explore why things happen. A lot of your patients are asking, why me? That's exactly the question we're trying to continue to answer for them in the 20% of people that have heart attacks without risk factors. And then the other part of my role is really trying to, to work with the amazing researchers around the country to kind of shift the culture of research to be a bit more of a, um, a real celebrated asset for the country and how we can actually work with our health leaders to, um, to really improve the efficiency where amazing discoveries and innovations can actually get to our patients quicker. So one of the things when you and I first um, caught up that you shared with me that I thought was really interesting was in a career in medicine, there's not a sort of predetermined path to follow. And therefore you have to be, um, you know, quite proactive or, you know, you really have to take that sort of into your own hands. How did you navigate that space and why ultimately 
cardiology. And, and I say that because my understanding from the statistics is that I think it's of interventional cardiologists, less than 5% are female. That's correct, yeah. yeah. It's 4.5% on last year's data, I think. And okay. that's actually probably increased quite a lot in the last five years, which is a good sign. Um, but I think, uh, you know, effectively, I mean, cardiology is fascinating. I mean, the heart itself is, you know, it's a relatively simple pump, but uh, the physiology and actually, obviously, the, the impact of of, of keeping your heart healthy is uh, is something that is is very passionate you know is a passionate um, uh, focus of mine in terms of the other practical aspects of it I mean I think the the areas of unknown kind of research is attractive to me the um, the actual job on a day-to-day -day level from a from a clinical perspective is really really um, I think exciting for me, you get to work with I mean, actually just that kind of acute care in medicine and keep, you know, the way you have to actually work with a diverse team of, of different um, allied health experts and obviously the patient and their family is something that um, has always been something I've, I've loved doing. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, that, that kind of diversity from the research bench to actually looking after the patient is something that I'm very lucky to, to have. So I think it was probably also, I guess, a, a few different people that you meet along the way, and obviously the patients that actually inspire you along the way from when you're a junior doctor. And I, and I guess in terms of your question about there not being that clear a path, I think in, in a sense, there is a, a pretty clear path. I mean, these days, it's slightly less clear because people don't go into medicine very often straight from school anymore. So at least that gives people a little bit of breathing space to go and do a more diverse range of things. Um, have, have a, I mean, I really enjoyed the early years of, of medicine being very focused on those preclinical subjects. But, you know, I think having that diversity now in the graduate programs is probably been a really good thing. Um, but after that, the internship residency and then effectively, you know, this the, being a physician or a surgeon or a GP is actually, a, there are pretty clear paths. Okay. What, what is interesting is though, you know, and I always tell the junior, the junior guys, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure coming through now because they increase in medical school numbers. And so they all feel like they're on a bit of a, they don't want to take any time going laterally for a bit they just they, they, they kind of need to they feel like they're going to keep moving because of this tide of doctors coming through yeah. uh, but I think what I've always said to them is you know even if you win the race you're still a rat basically so you know the, the more different things you do if you're passionate about them um, you know I think the better so from my perspective I took a year out within the mid, middle of my medical degree um, as an undergrad did an honours year over in London and um, had a fantastic year of science where I, I just cemented my love for um, for the research and then was lucky enough when I got back home to um, be, you know, pushed a little to uh, apply for a Rhodes Scholarship that I would never have dreamed of, of doing and was lucky enough to um, actually meet Meredith Hellicar during yeah. that process, who, uh, who was a great help. Um, introduced us. Yeah, so that was a, another, you know, I then did something that was quite unusual. I finished medicine and um, and then took three years out before my internship to go and do a PhD on a road scholarship in Oxford, which, again, is, it was very frowned upon by quite a few people because, you know, theoretically, you know, in those days, you weren't actually allowed to be registered to do your internship if you'd taken time out between your medicine and that. But I was lucky enough to have some people that were able to see that what I'd done was actually... 
hopefully not a, a time of a decrease in my ability to perform as an intern when I came home. So look, I think it is, it's as diverse as you make it. And I think I, I was, I really, the more, the more you actually take time to, to take steps in different directions, the more, I guess you, you, you really benefit from that. And for me, I, I just learned so much of that independent thought process and, um, and some of my leadership skills in that process that um, I, I, I was very, I think that's part of who I am now. So you were comfortable then taking risks and kind of backing yourself that it was going to be okay along the way? Look, I think part of it was probably driven by an accident that I had when I was 18 or 19. I, um, just after, probably just after first year medicine, I was, um, I was in Wyoming in the US skiing with um, friends and family and uh, had a brilliant day, unbelievable snow. Uh, but then I'd actually had my skis just sharpened the night before. But classic American way insurance, they, they decreased the DIN settings on my bindings. And so did a jump turn on the top of this steep run we've been doing and then actually fell head first on a hundred meter like a cliff and um, managed to scalp myself. So you can oh. see the little scar here. It was actually undid all the way around here and it just unzipped my head. So I was going to do a, a mini present. apology for anyone who struggles. <laughs> Images. We, we didn't warn them beforehand but I was lucky um my sister was there and she kind of pulled it back together again and but my hemoglobin which reflects how much blood I'd lost suggested I'd lost about five five sixths of my blood five liters of blood and um was barely I was lucky to kind of survive that so I think that really was a life um one of the life-changing moments the other thing that really I guess it helped me take uh, not so much risks but take the, the interesting roots and be confident that that was not going to be a bad thing was um, a very close friend of mine who had cystic fibrosis um, and wasn't really expected to even get to university but sat actually got into medicine and was doing medicine with us throughout the whole time and um, his amazing will for life and and doing things that for the right reasons was also a, um, a big inspiration I think. Wow. Um, I, I know the answer to this, but your sister today, what does, what does this is your sister do? <laughs> well, she's running the COVID response for the hospital back here at the moment. So um, she's an infectious disease doctor now, but um, she actually wasn't in medicine at the time. She was still at, still at high school. And um, she's really comfortable with blood and good head in an emergency. Yeah, and she actually went on to do a lot of work with the ski patrol down um, at the snow in the volunteer fa fashion and... Um, you know, I think she's she's certainly got uh, that ability. Do you still ski? Yes, with a helmet these days. <laughs> I was going to say, and blunt skis. <laughs> I try not to have them too blunt, but um, no, it was that, that era before people had actually realised that skiing in helmets was a sensible thing to do. Yeah, and, um, yeah so it was, it was obviously, in hindsight, not such a clever thing. <laughs> I'm glad for all of us that you... Uh, that you made it through that. Um, can I ask, um, let's move to the Cardiovascular Alliance. And one of the things you, you said to me when we met as well, because I said, it seems like you've already got a fairly full plate. Why would you, you know, why would you step into that as well? And, and your response to me was, I say yes a lot. Um, we're, we're grateful because here we are having this conversation that you also said yes to, but what was, <laughs> <laughs> what was it about that opportunity 
that um, that you know that attracted you? Why did you say yes? Look, I, I think I saw that this was an it was a, it was a young organisation. The timing was right because we really had you know this very generous investment in research or generous but sensible investment in research of the Australian government in terms of the Medical Research Future Fund. But it was it was an opportunity to really advocate not just for the importance of investing in research, but actually to work with researchers, but, but government around changing the way we, we use our amazing research assets that we have. And so I think we've actually seen it in COVID that really we can actually have the leaders of government and health work closely with our best researchers and clinicians to actually rapidly solve problems that we need to. And I think we need to I really believe that we could actually make even more out of our amazing researchers if we actually get them better aligned with um, the actual leaders of our health system, helping the leaders understand where the gaps and inequities are in, in um, clinical care and outcomes, and actually come up and use discoveries and innovations from our country to actually improve health, not just of Australians, but also around the world. And so this is something that we've done. I really... Um, enjoyed shaking things up a little in terms of um, really trying to make sure that our fundamental researchers are actually really tied into a translational pipeline. And one of the earliest things we did didn't actually cost any money, but has actually had a really big impact on the collegiality of the whole pipeline. And that's set up some, some really key flagships across the whole research section, um, implementation policy, trials, data, and then drug discovery and bioengineering and precision medicine aspects, which are much more fundamental, but actually driven by the clinical problem is something that's made a big difference, again, without any money. But we did, we were successful then and also, you know, I, I really enjoyed actually spending time in Canberra, um, working with both the minister, but also the department to think about ways of, um, I guess, rescuing cardiovascular research at the time, but also on a positive front, let's let's actually do something that could actually inform us about how to change the research culture for all um, more chronic conditions. And so we that I really enjoyed the, that kind of policy element and thinking about strategies to, um, to 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 really grow the sector and think about it as an industry. I mean, at the time, only about a tenth of the funding was coming to cardiovascular compared to oncology. If you considered the, the the, the broader things. And I think that's a little bit to do with this apathy that cardiovascular disease is all self-induced and really we understand it or it's just people don't look after themselves, which is, is absolute rubbish. And so um, that, that's actually kind of led to some big changes where we now, you know, are testing some, some approaches that hopefully will benefit the broader research section. And I mean, for every dollar that's actually spent on cardiovascular research, the Deloitte's report shows a 10 to 1 return on investment. So if you actually just saw it purely as an industry, this is something that a clever country should be um, working on. So I think we can still see, you know, further improvements. But a big passion was also trying to shift the culture um, and really make researchers feel indispensable part of the health system, but also look after each other in, in that approach. Wow, that sounds like a fairly no-brainer, doesn't it, in terms of the... The investment um, for the outcome side of that. Um, talk to me about the research space then. Like, what what do you feel most excited about? What's going on in there? What do you need to do to a to you know? Are there enough people moving in that pipeline? Are there enough females moving in that pipeline? Like, what do we need to be doing? 
Yeah, well, look, I think, you know, given the size of the problem, we really should, I mean, I, I kind of like to, 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 to really tackle head on this concept that, you know, cardiovascular disease is an in, inevitable part of aging, for instance, or, you know, I see 100 year olds with beautiful coronary arteries. Um, you know, there are people, it is not something that should be an inevitable part of, of, of aging. And so until we actually can maximize people's cardiovascular health through big jumps in our understanding, I, I think that we, um, you know, we, we need to keep investing. And, and so this has got, as I said, we could actually really attract not just global companies in to work with us. I mean, the cardiovascular space is a, is a very, you know, is a profitable one from a, from a market perspective. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for drug discovery, device discovery that actually has got, you know, a massive global market that could be great for the Australian economy. Um, and so, and also obviously building up Australian companies and actually linking, you know, providing that kind of um, much, much more, um, you know, energised uh, ecosystem that, uh, that will actually be transformative, I think. So I'm not sure I really answered your question there. <laughs> well, I want to know whether there's enough researchers, you know, are there enough, are there enough talented people coming through? And I know the research path might not necessarily lead to where you are, but you know, if I if I sit and look at those statistics around under five percent in your specialty, as an example, a female, um, is it is it a broader problem, and are there opportunities to you know inspire more young girls like you were to sort of follow this sort of path? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean. The research sector itself tends to take that same shape as as medicine in terms of um, dropping off uh, in, in of females in the leadership roles. Um, I mean, I guess I'm a little bit unusual in the sense of having you know both of them is like a double whammy really for me. And you know, I think that's partly to do with the in in both the university setting and the hospital setting, we have a lot less turnover than you know industries and also even you know cardiology in the US, they're actually seeing a shift in this diversity a lot more because people move around a lot more. In Australia, we tend to you know be fairly um, you know I won't say stuck in one place because it's a lovely place to be, but um, you know as a result, there's not many new opportunities coming through. And even if with the best intentions in the world, without many jobs coming up for senior level people, it does mean that people tend to be a bit conservative in, in how we approach that. And so I guess from my perspective, how can we tackle that? Um, you know, I, I think part of it is actually, you know, recognising that we actually do need a lot more people in the field, as you say, but also some, I don't, the, the bits around it that's actually going to energise the ecosystem, it's in some of this translational space and some of the commercial space that actually will also um, help, you know, energise investment, not just from health, but also from, from industry, um, which, is, which will be really a game changer I think and so I mean for the scientist side of things I try to make sure, I mean one of the great things about working here at North Shore is that we actually have a really long-standing legacy of, um, of clinicians and basic scientists working very closely the Colling Institute which is where I, I'm based is fantastic state-of-the-art facility but right next to the hospital so it's a literally a, a 20 meter bridge across to the cath lab and um, where a lot of the work that we're doing is, I mean, I think the the army definitely needs to increase in the cardiovascular space, uh, and we, but I think that needs to be done through, I, I think, just recognizing the huge burden of disease and the fact that researchers can tackle that, and research and innovation therefore is something that is 
an asset that we need to um, invest in now. We don't, you know, it, with COVID, we obviously need to tackle it now. With cardiovascular disease, we probably need to save the same urgency because there is a lot of people dying every day of, of heart disease. So, I mean, one person every, uh, you know, 12 minutes suffering a heart attack. So. Wow. That, that brings a time, doesn't it? Um, when you think of it like that. In um, your cardiovascular alliance, I noticed that you guys um, are running a mentor award. What's that all about? Yeah, look, we, um, I mean, firstly, I think it's really important to recognise, um, you know, the amazing things that people do. But mentorship has got to be one of the, the number one things in our field that um, it needs to be celebrated. And um, we, we've got a, a really fantastic mentor uh, program that uh, our executive director, Kerry Doyle, has um, been a, a big driver on. And that's actually a little different and actually really important in research because she's actually really got a lot of mentors from outside of research actually um, involved as well in that program, which is terrific for mm. some of our scientists. Um, we also have a champions of cardiovascular um, research program that actually is teaching people around better communication and leadership skills uh, as well as obviously consumer and community engagement uh, and so that's 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 useful but back to the I mean the awards we've got an inaugural a lot of awards that hopefully will actually happen in real life but um, the yep. big three um, awards that we've got for this year one is the mentor one, which I think, as I said, is, 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 is really important to celebrate. Uh, and then secondly, we, we've got one on kind of the game changer and then one on translation as well. So I, not too many, but certainly really important areas that we'll be um, looking forward to, uh, to celebrating with the community. I think that's so important because you hear so much of... Um, you know, you, you can't be what you can't see and those sorts of things. So any opportunity to, you know, call role models out, um, I think is so important. Um, have mentors been important? And I'll go back to, I think, earlier when you brought up someone encouraged you to go for the Rhodes Scholarship as an example. Like what sort of role have mentors played in your, your life and your career? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, what I now read and learn about and and you know, actually the Franklin Women um, Mentorship Program that I actually went through, you know, a lot of that formality was not, you know, pervading uh, any of my mentor-mentee kind of relationships early on. But I think it was really a combination of role model and also I think sponsorship kind of concepts and people just looking out for you. And uh, one of my early role models within my early years of medicine was um, Professor Bruce Robinson, who uh, was an amazing physician, endocrinologist, but also basic scientist. And um, he, was, he was actually the one that he did encourage me to um, pursue the, the Rhodes Scholarship application, which was terrific. I mean, at the time, women weren't necessarily, were very, were definitely in the minority in the successful Rhodes Scholar candidates. But um, in our year, we actually managed to get eight out of the nine scholarships in the country. So wow. it was a bit of a funny one. And in fact, um, Craig, who was the only male to go, was um, offered to be the cox for our eight. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, he was about... Uh, you know, over six foot tall and yeah. um, probably not very suited for the Cox <laughs> seat. But um, I don't know if I, I'd say other role models. I mean, I think certainly um, one of my science teachers I mentioned earlier, Deirdre Land, um, 
who I haven't actually heard of from a long time, but uh, I, I would love to get in touch with her because she's really had a big influence on my passion for, for science and certainly, you know, the can-do attitude kind of thing. Uh, and then, you know, I think along the way, it's a little bit, I've been quite active in, I guess, getting advice from the right people rather than necessarily having any any formal mentorship along the way. But, you know, I think that that does, that it is a two-way process really, isn't it? You, you do need to recognise what you're missing and, and reach out for it sometimes as well. Yeah. How do you, um, you know, you've got um, some pretty significant leadership roles. How do you, um, you know, find the space to, to think about you as a leader and, you know, with everything else that you've got going on? Do you? Can you? I, I don't know if I think about leadership so much in a strategic fashion. I definitely think of strategy, which, you know, in a sense is, is what I then need to try to convert to action. Um, but that strategy is more in actually how we're going to change, you know, the ecosystem rather than necessarily what am I doing to, to, to improve my own leadership skills. I mean, I think one thing I have got hopefully a little bit better at is recognising just how actively you need to listen to the whole team and just how valuable all of the diverse inputs are that you can get. And I think that's been helpful. I do also, um, you know, recognise that your, your vision and your ability to see the right path, you know, does require a kind of a bit of downtime. You know, you do need to actually get out and have some time to think. And that's something that I, I get mostly from exercise, actually. So, you know, long runs or cycles or, you know, a bit of yoga or something is actually always a, a great way to clear the head and get back to it. So having a making time to have to get the, the vision right and then developing the strategy I think is is really important but then for me it's also about inspiring the team and trying to figure out how you can best do that and that tends to be all about your energy and also I guess recognizing what drives the individuals that you're working with um, so yeah I, I think I, I don't I don't actually probably think enough about how to do it well but can I ask, um, <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you as well, I lost my own train of thought as you were just saying that then, um, importance of a network for you. I know that you've got a little group, Hearts and Heels. Tell me, tell me about your network. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, that, that is, one, is one of the examples of networks, but um, it, it's a, a group of, of female cardiologists that actually... I think the Heart Foundation actually originally got together in New South Wales and it's been on the on the front end of a lot of advocacy around the importance of um, the female voice in, in departments and, and obviously other things and worked with groups from outside of medicine to try to actually, you know, get uh, male, effect, you know, champions of change and, and things like that as well, which we definitely need. I think... Um, it also is just a bit of a, a good time to, to sit down and have a laugh of our experiences because, you know, it is a, a very slowly changing um, field and, you know, particularly given, you know, at least half our patients are women, you know, and on top of that, you know, we, we do bring a different approach to the way medicine is, is done. So I think it, it has been a really useful network. I mean, from my perspective, also the networks outside of medicine and research, 
you know, through team sport or through your other friendships and things is equally important. And for me, even during COVID, the international networks were actually a fabulous kind of time to get real perspective about what's happening in the world and um, to how lucky we are in a sense. Have you, um, uh, and people often get uncomfortable with this question, but I just wonder, why do you think you've been so successful in this space? Look, I think early on I became aware that, I was very aware in my early teenage years that trying hard was, you know, frowned upon. <laughs> and the, try, the concept of a try hard was something that people used as an insult. And I just didn't understand that at all. I, I think I'm someone that, you know, has, I guess, moderate amount of different talent. Um, but it's actually probably the, the, the mixture of talent, but also number one, just nutting down and trying really hard and actually loving the things that you try the hardest for are the best, you know, when you actually get some success. So for me, it was recognising that I, it was absolutely fine to, to, to kind of go against this concept of being a try hard and I celebrated being a try hard. And so I think that's probably why I actually managed to do okay. I mean, I think the other thing is that that kind of comfort in just, you know, taking steps that might not be part of the traditional rat race and um, everything I've learned in that process. Like um, like many other women, do you sometimes, you know, have feelings of self-doubt or, um, you know, I think you hear the term imposter syndrome and things like that. Like, does that, that part yeah. of your experience? Look, I think um, absolutely. The, 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 I mean, I think the thing that I just, you know, is always just being a mum is something that I'm still absolutely do not understand how people can do it so well because you know just wrestling the children out the door this morning uh, they're lucky enough to actually be going to school um, but we you know they're just I, I just wish I could inspire them to actually follow me and do what I ask them to do. <laughs> You're not on your own in that regard I was just thinking before when you were talking about the try hard um, I've got teenagers and I think the new term for try hard is they're sweaty. All oh, right. Yeah. So if you hear the word sweaty used at your home, don't assume it's to do with sport. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's a, it is a bit of an Aussie thing that I think when I was in particularly Oxford, I think it was just really very um, a nice relief in a sense to be in a place where people really did um, weren't afraid of trying hard and, and yeah. actually, you know celebrated it and then, I mean I think Australia probably has changed and there are you know certainly people are, are supported for, for doing their best. So any times during your career path where you felt that where you felt um, you know I'm not sure if this is the right direction for me and and push through it anyway? I think because I've got such different bits of my week and days that, you know, what's actually happened is I've been able to just push forward with the things I really enjoy. Whereas I think there probably are aspects within medicine that, you know, if you end up following the very, the more prescribed version of, um, of the course that you might, you know, suddenly realize you're down a pathway that you don't particularly want to be in. But by having um, that slightly unusual diversity of, you know, that really those three jobs um, that I've got, I can, I can, balance the weight a little bit which is a real you know a lucky situation to be in. Do you have a typical day? Uh, I have a typical week. Okay. Um, and I guess uh, 
that really you know does change depending on how much on call I've got and things like that but um you know that is my job is really enabled by being in a hospital that does have allow you know fundamental research to be done at a high level right right in its midst with you know literally a lot of the work we're doing is trying to unravel why the patients that are sitting just over there in the cath lab are having their heart attacks and you know we actually often running between the cath lab with you know patients consent and registry in the blood and you know straight to the to the phd students who are actually doing work on unraveling the remaining mysteries there absolutely fascinating before i ask you the final question you know there's a uh, um a gender lens that I guess these conversations are, are surrounded in. Have you, you know, is there something that you'd love to say to girls in school maybe who might be considering a career in medicine? Uh, I mean, firstly, obviously go for it. Um, you know, it is a fantastic profession that doesn't necessarily have to take you in any very prescribed direction. And as you know, for me, tossing up between the teaching and the science, I get to do that as well. Um, I think these days for kids growing up, the other thing is medicine is something that you can do as a graduate, and that's actually now the, the path in. So really, it's actually just getting your, your teeth stuck into how amazing the human body, physiology is, anatomy is, and um, and really just passion for for, for that. And actually making the most of um, you know any resources you can to 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 improve your your knowledge and understanding and and or at that and if that's something that drives you, um, medicine is certainly something that is a very rewarding um, direction. But so is medical research, and that's actually something that is is definitely uh, can be a very very rewarding um, career as well. Well, do both, like yourself. <laughs> why why stop at one? Um, Gemma, the final question I ask everybody in the series is, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change? Look, I think brave probably refers to most leadership where you're actually expressing a different, um, a different view than, than the norm. And if you're going to actually change the ecosystem and the culture, that does need some courage. Uh, I think always, you know, if you're the only woman in the room standing up again and, you know, suggesting a, a, a different path to what's been taken before, that that is brave leadership to a degree. Um, but it's the same for any minority view or, or group, I guess. So um, in terms of what needs to change, I think continuing to do work on, you know, promoting the value of diversity mm. and also addressing any of the hurdles that exist to 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 either gain improved diversity or to actually support um, the voices of those that are in the minority. So amongst the kids, your role as an interventional cardiologist, um, leading research, chickens and whippets, um, which is the hardest to manage? <laughs> Definitely somewhere between the kids, the chickens and the whippets. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining our conversation, Gemma. We're, you know, incredibly lucky to have, um, you know, incredibly passionate and talented people like you leading the charge on this. So I'm so glad you said yes to our conversation. <laughs> and uh, look forward to, to the outcomes of the incredible research you guys are doing.
Oh, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.